You think it's a mystery now? Well, you see it tomorrow. Remember the Charlie Ross disappearance? I worked in that case for 24 hours and they never did find him. They couldn't find me for five years. That's me, Captain Yard of Scotland's Balling. I always get my women for painting. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. I'm Matthew Conium and this is episode 45, That Encyclopedia. This edition of the podcast is in response to the thousands and thousands of listeners who got in touch with us uh, and continue to get in touch with us every month to say that what the show needs above everything else is another English accent. But before we say what ho and pip pip to our special guest, let's get the Americans out of the way. On my virtual left, writer, performer, composer and all-round good egg Noah Diamond. Yes, that's uh, Diamond, Noah, writer, performer, podcaster. And on my virtual right, producer, editor, Olympian, and all-round scrambled egg, Bob Gassell. Oh, thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, everyone, no, thank you. Everybody sit down. Oh, thank, thanks. Sit down. Everybody sit. Ah, oh, thank, thank you. <laughs> well, Marx Brothers fans are often asked which book about the team they would choose if, in some admittedly unlikely dystopian future, they were permitted to retain only one. From its publication in 1996 and ever after, my answer has been unwavering, the Marx Brothers Encyclopedia. It's a book that, for me, is doubly cherishable. First, because it really does contain pretty much everything you could possibly want to know about the team in instantly accessible form. But in addition, it's also incredibly readable, with numerous essay-length entries, each of which lead you to another, and then to another, and another. Many other readers who have casually picked it up, intending only to check on Harpo's birthday, or find out whether Walter Wolf King really was called Walter Wolf King, only to find that many hours later, the kitchen sink has overflowed and they're still reading the damn thing. The author of the book, and of the equally essential Chaplin Encyclopedia, Laurel and Hardy Encyclopedia, and A to Z of silent film comedy, is Glenn Mitchell, and we're delighted to welcome him to the podcast today. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Matthew, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Great to be here. Um, well, we'll come to the uh, to the encyclopedia in due course. But first of all, we we always ask our guests their Mark's origin story, which is uh, if you can recall uh, when you first encountered the team, how instant was their appeal, and so on and so forth. Mm, prehistory, <laughs> well, certainly pre-video at any rate. But mm. um, no, it's <laughs> I, I could have I could have said it was way back when they were new, but I'm not that old. Um, that was my father's experience, actually. But uh, no, like most of my generation, I discovered this type of thing through television. And um, this must have been the early 60s. I was not very old. And the first Marx Brothers movie I saw on TV was Monkey Business. And the thing that always stuck with me from that was the gag with Harper at Customs with the gramophone phonograph strapped to his back. <laughs> That really made an impression on me. It's the sort of gag that would appeal to a small child, particularly, I think. And that was the, that was the one that did it, really. And uh, with, with most, most of the things in that sort of area that I, that I took an interest in as a kid, um, in most, most of them were things that my father had seen at the time and enjoyed. And when they turned up again, he pointed me at them and said, that, watch this, this is good. Um, in this particular instance, with the Marx Brothers, it applied equally to my eldest brother, actually Derek, his name, uh, who was a Marx Brothers fan anyway. And of, of, of all the comedians in this sort of category, it was the Marxists that he was enthused over and would talk about to me as a small child. So, so I got them recommended both by my dad and my eldest brother. 
and I think I'm getting ahead slightly because my brother has a connection with somebody else you're going to ask me about. Ah, uh, yes, indeed, yeah. Incidentally, um, same uh, introduction for me, same film, same scene, the, um, the Chevalier scene. Um, assuming that you did fall instantly head over heels for them, how hard was it then to see them all pre-video, all the films? Did it take you, take you a while to catch up with all of them? It did, actually, yes, because um, for one thing, uh, the BBC, who was showing the Marx Brothers pictures, they weren't on commercial TV here, didn't like the print of coconuts. They thought it wasn't good enough quality. So the BBC would never show coconuts. So if you wanted to see it, you either had to have access to 16mm or catch up with it at one or other of the repertory cinemas, of which there were quite a few in the old days. Um, it's you know practically extinct now. There are, there are some survivors, but there used to be a lot of places that specialised in revivals, both small independents and also uh, the, the famous over here, famous classic cinema chain, which dealt in reissues. And uh, so I didn't see Coconuts for quite some time. I had a narrow miss with it in the summer of 1974. I had two misses, actually, because um, um, I noticed a week too late in the repertory cinema listings that it had been on at the classic Notting Hill Gate. <laughs> and I found out you know, I was a week too late and they were showing... A Night at the Opera, which I had already seen, and the Laurel and Hardy feature Fra Diavolo as a double bill. And so I got to that, but was pretty annoyed that I'd missed Coconuts the previous week. And uh, at around the same time, narrowly missed getting at a film collector's fair a 16mm print of Coconuts. Uh, my dad had recently got a 16mm projector, so we could actually have screened the thing. <laughs> but somebody had narrowly beaten us to Coconuts at the film fair. So two near misses with Coconuts in 74. And in the end, I first saw it at another of the repertory cinemas, the Everyman Hampstead, in 1978. So it's quite late. At this distance, it sounds ridiculous to say as late as 1978. But if you're this age group, it is. And uh, I, I went there straight from going to for a job interview, strangely enough. Um, sadly, I got the job. But I went straight <laughs> from this office in the city up to Hampstead. A few more stops on the northern line underground and so I got to see it at, 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 at Hampstead and um, it was quite an interesting experience it was a weekday afternoon uh, not quite as bad weather as the weekday afternoon though J.B. Priestley first saw Coconuts in 1929 as a story there he was in Golders Green His, he first saw the Marx Brothers getting out of out of the rain in, in Golders Green and saw Coconuts but um, but it was a largely empty theatre it's the sort of place where you really think you're probably better off picking a seat nowhere near anybody else because some of the people used to come in. And I found myself sitting immediately behind a, a very old man um, sitting in an aisle seat. And I thought, okay, I can, I can live with this. You know. But partly through the movie, he suddenly traced a neat 90-degree arc and landed with a thud in the aisle. And I looked at them, my God, he's dead. And so you know, this is this is a critique of coconuts I wasn't expecting. <laughs> but um, so anyway, so I sat there thinking, my God, you know, going to stiff in our hands. And the the usherette came along, clearly used to this man, neatly put, placed him <laughs> back as he'd been, and there were some vague stirring noises, and he seemed quite content. And so did she, and she just disappeared again with her ice creams. So. Um, it was a very, very strange afternoon, really, but that's, uh, that's how I saw coconuts. In the end, <laughs> in the end, Channel 4 
TV commercial had no concerns about the print, and they screened it. So that was the first time I caught up with it on TV, and um, subsequently one of the cable stations had it, and then, you know, now it's everywhere. So that's how long it took me to see Coconuts. And uh, the others I'd caught up with one way or the other, um, I think Love Happy, I'd only managed to see on Super 8 at that point. And again, that took a long time to reach television, but it's been on a few times. And again, it's well worth a now. wait, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Academically, yes. Um, <laughs> but the rest I'd seen. Um, but you could see them, and sometimes in unexpected places. Um, a night in Casablanca, I, I saw. Um, when I should, I wasn't supposed to have done. I wasn't intending to. I was actually intending to see. Uh, no, actually, it was it was the other way around. I'd I'd seen it, but a, a friend of mine had persuaded me to come up to a kind of youth centre in central London where they were they're supposed to be screening Night in Casablanca, and I thought, okay, I'll go. I'd like to see it again. And we got there, and they announced there'd been a problem with the prints, so they're showing room service instead. <laughs> this was sometime in the seventies, so I think I still saw room service for the first time by accident because it was supposed to be the Night in Casablanca. So I'm curious, when you were discovering the Marxes, were you already a fan of like Laurel and Hardy and Chaplin, Keaton, and the others? Yes, I, I, I was. Um, I, I guess I saw them all pretty much at a similar sort of time because. Um, it's quite interesting that a great many people in my immediate age group, and I'll put my hand up, I'm 63, so and I meet people who are similar age or a few years either side, and this applies to both sides of the Atlantic. Talking about me. Yeah, I, I'm sure you know what I'm going to say. Um, well, we call it the Bob Gassell generation, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stick with that. I hate baby boomers. I think it's a terrible term, so I'll go with that. I like that. But... Um, <laughs> But TV on both sides of the pond really got into this stuff. And it wasn't just because it was all public domain and free, because a lot of it wasn't. But a lot of the comedies of the silent era and the early talk era were being shown. Um, Everything from the Chaplin shorts, albeit the 30s scored prints, um, to the Robert Youngson compilations, to the March Brothers features, the Laurel and Hardy shorts and features, um, there was and some Keat and so on. W.C. Fields. These are all getting uh, shown. Our gang. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not much over here, actually. No? They're very big in the States, but they weren't shown on TV in Britain. Um, I think there may have been one or two regions, like some place in Scotland had them, but they were never a thing on TV in Britain. They, so, they, so their audience didn't continue. Uh, Same with the Stooges, actually, there. until Channel 4, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. We didn't get the Stooges either. Mm. Well, no, not much. And again, some of the ITV, commercial TV regions had them, but nationally, no, they weren't shown. Um, so no, I know they continue to be, you know, the stuff of legend with the with the American, American audiences, TV audiences, but over here, mm-hmm. apart from film collectors, they, they don't mean anything much, which is a great shame. Mm-hmm. Great shame. You know, I find that interesting that our gang wasn't given much of a shot over there. I would think with the popularity of Laurel and Hardy that there would be at least some curiosity as to how more Hal Roach product would fare. Yeah, uh, but no, um, they were Laurel and Hardy were virtually alone from the Roach output to get TV exposure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they they didn't see them being stable mates as being enough of a mm-hmm. enough of a link really. Uh, similarly, they didn't show the Charlie Chase films, um, anything else. Um, 
I, I didn't even know properly about, say, the, the Pits and Todd shorts, for example, um, apart from the one-off that Blackhawk used to do. They used to do prints of red noses. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those, incidentally, Blackhawk kind of conveyed the impression of the catalogue that these are just one-off comedies that Roach had done rather than the series examples. But uh, So it wasn't mm-hmm. until um, the mid-'70s I was reading Leonard Malta's movie comedy teams that I knew much more about those because uh, they just weren't mm-hmm. shown. We didn't know anything about them. And uh, again, you had to be a collector. So, um, mm-hmm. but no, and the, the Our Gang thing, I, I'm hard put to explain it, but I think there's probably more resistance to them. Although they were very popular in, this, in the theatres when they were new, they, were, they did very well here. I wonder how much of it is the fact that, that Britain doesn't do cute kids quite as enthusiastically, where we don't embrace mm. that so much, uh, or kids who seem to be too damn good at things. <laughs> you know, it's, it's this thing like... Well, the, you know, but for a lot of us, we saw them when we were kids, so we could relate to them yeah. as opposed to watching them from afar as an adult. Oh, yeah. I'm just thinking of the adults who are commissioning and buying in packages. They probably weren't mm. so interested in the idea of cute kids. Children would probably have enjoyed them, actually, yeah. Um, one mm. of the few times when they were shown here, and this was long after the end, about 1984, um, the London, London ITV, the commercial station, had them. They had, unfortunately, they're those King World prints, enough said. Right. But um, mm. they, they, were stream, they, they were stripping them along weekday mornings at about nine, about nine o'clock in the morning. And so they obviously mm. saw them as something that the small children might get into. And it lasted a good three weeks, you know, three weeks, and that was it. Um, but um, but no, I, I think that the that the the people who, who buy them were like too like a lot of British were not impressed by kid things, and they weren't thinking that children might relate to them. I honestly don't think they they thought it through, frankly. When you were discovering all of this comedy and tracking down the movies and uh, getting to know all of these comedians, did you know at the time, or or did you suspect at the time that? you were going to spend uh, part of your life writing about comedy? Uh, no, absolutely no. <laughs> I don't know when that particular penny dropped, <laughs> but um, uh, actually, I, actually, I think I do. It was when I really started to collect a lot of film as an adolescent, I saw other people were writing at least unpaid stuff, fans, fanzine stuff for things. So I did the same. I wrote a thing for a magazine that was put out by an 8mm distributor over here whom I knew and got into print that way. And uh, then in the middle 70s, if you wanted to stay on at school after the compulsory leave, well, the minimum leaving age of 16, if you wanted to go into, into the higher part of it, you had to do a school project and, and present it to them at the end of the summer break before you begin the next the next year as a 17-year-old. And most most of the most of the guys who did this decided that they should do rather academic things. They were... They were coming up with, I mean, there's one, one notably laudable thing where a guy of artistic leanings was doing replicas of Da Vinci sketches. It was a beautiful thing. He, so he did that and it was all very serious. They were high slitting projects. I wrote a book about early screen comedy. So that was my first book properly. Never, never put for publication when I was 16, just to stay out at school. But I did a thing about early screen comedy, which was British and American and some European, with a kind of cut-off point of the mid-30s, but going back to the beginnings of film. And it was at that time, having 
managed to produce that project just to be allowed to stay on at school, I thought, yeah, maybe, you know, in the future I could actually do this properly. And in the years that followed, too many other things got in the way, but um, eventually I did do it, and um, the rest you know. Were you always somebody that had a sort of an encyclopedic turn of mind? Did you did you seek out and retain facts and uh, you know, <laughs> obscure details? And Yes. <laughs> a facility for memory. Mm. And I could say I forget where I got it from, but um, it's just... <laughs> But uh, no, it's it's true. I, I tend to retain facts and information far more than I would like to at times. I would sleep better if I didn't. But um, it's just one of those. That's, it's that this is not any particular credit to me. It's just something a facility I was born with. Yes, um, yes, a, a facility for memory, and things go in and they tend to stay. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure I'm bound to betray this totally later on in this conversation when you catch me up on a few <laughs> things. <laughs> As we mentioned earlier, as well as being, as far as I'm aware, the first writer to draw attention to the uh, missing material from A Night at the Opera, you also have an interesting connection with the Horse Feathers missing material mystery, which is the uh, strangely complete print that Alan Aylis talks about in his book. Yes, it, it, it actually was pronounced Isles, by the way. Um, oh, is it? So the, I, was connect- uh, I, I always Isles, used to yes. say that, and I was corrected wrongly. Right. Oh. By whom, I wonder? Um, I can't remember. Put it though, this yeah. way, his old, uh, his old art teacher, and mine too, said Isles. <laughs> so <laughs> I mentioned him once to my old art teacher some years after the event. And, and that's the connection here, you see. Because earlier on, I referred to my eldest brother, Derek. And this is all a bit, a little complicated, but it all, it all centres on our old school, Battersea Grammar School, which is no more. It became a comprehensive, but... Um, that's what it was when we were there. But we were there at different times. And um, there was a certain, I guess, Marx Brothers coterie there, <laughs> which I was the tail end of. I was probably the last representative. And, and, and by a bit of a margin, I came in later. My brother Derek's closest friend at school was a guy called uh, Graham Parlett. And it was his elder brother, David Parlett, who was into the Marx Brothers, and he was at the same school as Alan Niles. He was, they all went to Battersea Grammar School. And Is he the guy that was a, a, a games designer? Yeah, yeah and, he, he, and he also designed my website. He put that up. <laughs> and he was the one who saw what was obviously an original release print of Horse Feathers at one of the classic cinemas I mentioned earlier on, earlier on, around 1958, I suppose, I think it was. And he took extensive notes of the film as it then was. Little suspecting, no, I had no reason to expect, that that would probably be the last time anybody would see that film complete. Because, um, you know, as we know, we've got now the, the, the chopped-up reissue prints. And, but David saw the complete version. When he was taking the notes, he didn't at that time realise that he was, uh, you know, he wasn't taking the notes because he knew that this was um, a remarkable print. He was just the sort of person who took notes of films. Yeah, he, he was a Marx Brothers enthusiast who, right. was, who, was, who was noting down what he was seeing, yeah. Not expecting right. it to have a, a service to posterity as it has done. But as a result of that, he, he was able to supply his notes to Alan Isles when he did his Marx Brothers book in the mid-60s. Because they knew each other from school. So um, when did he realize he had seen a, a rare print? 
only long after, long after um, nobody, nobody didn't know at the time. I often wonder what happened to those prints that the classic cinemas had because, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier on the Laurel and Hardy Fra Diavolo. Now, the print I saw, the classic, had that title, which was the working title. It was the preview title in the States, and it was the original UK release title and the title in, in foreign language prints. In the United States, at the last minute, MGM decided to translate the title into English, so it was released as The Devil's Brother. And that's the title you see on print now. But the classic cinema in 1974 had a print called Frau Diavolo of 35mm. And I don't know what became of it. I'd love to know. Um, ironically, the print of A Night at the Opera with which it shared a bill was the choppy copy we now know. <laughs> um, so, and, and that's a story in itself, actually, because not too long ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, the guy in Arizona I mentioned earlier on, funny enough, uh, Richard Roberts. And he tells me he saw a print of a night of the opera, and I think maybe he said TV, I'm not sure, and maybe end of 60s. And as far as he remembers, it was complete. It wasn't the chopped copy. And, it, and I know it had been on TV in this country during the 60s too, and I know that. And I, I was a sharp kid. I recognised when films had damage, splices and that sort of thing. I, you know, I, I was acquainted with all that. And I remember coming home from the 1974 classic screening and saying to my folks, I just sat through the most incredibly chopped up print of A Night of the Opera. I remember saying that to them. And I don't think I would have said that if my previous experience of it had been the same. I honestly don't think I would have said that. Mm. So there's a feeling that somehow there must have been a complete copy of that kicking around um, in the 60s even, but we can't prove that. So is there any memory by you or your friend of the beginning of the film, the musical number before the restaurant scene? No, I don't actually have a memory of it. I, he didn't mention it. He may, he may well remember. I don't know. Um, I'd have to ask him. Mm-hmm. I do know, I remember as a kid recognizing splices and things and mm-hmm. the, when things had been right. cut. And um, yeah. and and noticing such things, I worked out for myself, for example, that the soundtrack is scanned after the picture, <laughs> because I'd recognise I'd mm-hmm. well, spy whether there'd be a couple of black lines on picture, and then a moment later right. there'd be a thump. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you know, I was kind of mm-hmm. technically savvy to, to how film worked right. as a kid. It, it had been explained to me, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. and I think I would have noticed, you know, thumps, bumps, and jumps. <laughs> Uh, to, to the conspicuous extent that we see now in it, you know. So um, right. that's about the best I can I can say. But um, you mentioned the the business about having spotted apparently the first to spot the fact that opera was chopped up. I I believe you were the first. Yeah, certainly the first I I come across it was in your book. Yeah. No, it, well, it surprised me that nobody had mentioned it at the time. And when I first wrote that up for the for the original edition, all I had to go on. Um, were two things. The movie itself, is, as it was available by then, and a paperback, one of two that was put out by Viking Press. They did A Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races. And this was a time when, before video and everything, there was a lot more point in publishing transcriptions and scripts yeah. of movies. There were quite a few of them. You yeah. may remember the, the Monkey Business Duck Soup combo paperback. Uh, right. was another one. But, uh, yeah, Viking did opera and races. And in each case, it was split into two. Um, a transcription of the complete movie as it was 
and an mm. earlier script so you could compare and contrast. And what I finished up doing essentially was uh, looking in, at every point where opera clicked, jumped and thumped <laughs> and seeing what there was in the earlier script that corresponded to that to give you some idea of what must have gone. And that was how I was able to reconstruct it and piece it together. It was only subsequently for the um, the second edition at least that I had something even more useful. Somebody supplied me with a copy of the cutting continuity, which um, mm. for the few people out there who don't know about these, it's a complete typewritten account, shot by shot, dialogue line by, by line and so on, of a movie, a complete typewritten record of a movie prepared by the studios to assist in um, maintaining negatives uh, if they got damaged, you know, they need to replace sections and that type of thing. And mm. also to make cuts if they needed to, uh, particularly sensor cuts. And this was a copy mm. that it was the original complete 1935 co cutting continuity. But it was the copy that had been held at the British Board of Film Censors. And it had been mm. marked for cuts to the reissue. And all of the cuts corresponded to all the cuts we see now in the print. So obviously it was d done presumably separately over the, the side of the Atlantic as well from what had been complete material. Maybe they, they, they cut it on both sides of the Atlantic separately. I, I don't know. But what it did was tell me exactly what had been cut out. This was an original record of what had been in there. And it verified almost everything that I'd managed to piece together using the Viking paperback. It, 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 it uh, clarifies some of the lines. I was able to quote some of the lines more, more exactly, although they're pretty similar, but it confirmed what had been in the movie prior to the reissue. And, and I wish I'd had that for the first edition, but at least there was some satisfaction in being able to do it by detective work for the first edition. But that cutting continuity was, was, turned out to be quite invaluable. Well, I, I want to talk to you about the encyclopedia, obviously, and uh, in just a moment we will. Um, but, but first and very quickly, because you're best known to Marx fans as a provider of facts, uh, we thought we'd, we'd tease a few opinions out of you. So um, <laughs> do you have any uh, favourites or least favourites among the Marx Brothers oh, films? Yeah, OK. Well, we've already touched upon the special exception of Love Happy. <laughs> Which isn't happy. <laughs> um, that's not to say there aren't some funny things in it. There are, actually. I mean, you know, it's always worth seeing them one way or the other. And some, some, of, the, some of the business with, um, with Harpo producing everything from the coat. And, uh, and, and you, can't really, you can't really argue with any, any movie that gives you Groucho and Marilyn Monroe. I mean, any, that would be just being gratitude. <laughs> So, um, and we know that there are reasons for Love Happy being what it is, but um, I think other than that, I'm less inclined to do without any specific Marx movie rather than sections of them. Even room service? Well, actually, I was going to say that room service <laughs> is one I don't look at very often because I've always right. found it quite depressing in a way. It's it, it, it's claustrophobic. There's there's a, there's an atmosphere about it which actually mm. triggers my predisposition to depression. Um, I do have problems <laughs> with that. <laughs> really, um, it's it's an it's an atmosphere, and it closes in. It's an atmosphere that closes in on you. Mm. It's you know, claustrophobia yeah. of a sort, I suppose. So it's the one mm. I'm least inclined to look at of their main features. 
Um, but no, I wouldn't want to get rid of any of them. Don't want to lose any of them. Just just vast sections of a day at the races, at the circus, go west. I could live without elements of the big store. You are you are famous among fans for um, doing the audio commentary for a day at the races and not bothering to, to even then to watch the water carnival. <laughs> you kind of wander off and come back on the commentary. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering why I heard a toilet flushing. <laughs> Believe me, if there'd been one handy in the studio where we did it, I'd have done that. <laughs> I wish there had been. FX flush. Oh, boy. No, and I was quite happy to go out to the lobby until that thing blew over. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, wait. You still haven't answered the question. Which is your favorite Marx Brothers film? Which one is it? My favorite Marx Brothers movie is probably Animal Crackers. Actually. All right. I, I waver a bit. If you'd asked me 25, 30 years ago, maybe a bit longer than that, I would have said Duck Soup. But mm-hmm. um, I think what didn't help with that was that... Um, it suffered from sheer repetition. For years, it was the only Marx Brothers Paramount movie that would turn up on TV over here. And I, was, and I just got annoyed. And like, come on, where are the rest of them? They were showing the MGMs, and usually more, more usually the later MGMs, and Duck Soup. Uh, if you wanted to see anything mm-hmm. um, like monkey business, yeah, forget it. You have to go to a repertory cinema. Uh, there was this big gap mm-hmm. between about, about 1971 and 90, the early 80s. TV had a sort of Marx Paramount phobia apart from Duck Suit. So, yeah, time-wise, I might have said Duck Suit, but, um, but no, Animal Crackers keeps coming back, and um, according mm-hmm. to mood, it might, might, be, might, might be monkey business, because that, for me, actually has the greatest momentum to it. Apart from the very end, when it kind of stops, <laughs> it's the one that moves the best. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know... Um, if I'm going to flip a coin and it came down both both sides, I'd say animal crackers and monkey business. If you if you can find a coin that does that, you're good. <laughs> I think a seven cent nickel. Would do that, yeah. <laughs> well, you're among friends. I think animal crackers is on, at the top of all three of our lists, isn't that right? Oh, that's interesting yeah. to mm-hmm. know. Yeah, yeah. Um, for something that really didn't start life as a movie as such. And which doesn't flow like a movie either. It has the most extraordinarily lopsided structure oh, yes. to it. Um, and I, w- I always feel that but by the end, you know, you are kind of... It, do- it does wear you down. It does beat you into submission. <laughs> I like that about it. But. Yeah. You know, you could have the T-shirt. You know, I was, I was bludgeoned by animal crackers and that not efficient animals <laughs> working out for themselves. <laughs> so, oh, boy. Now I remember terrible, terrible rush going to see a, a revival of Animal Crackers at another of the classic cinemas in the mid-70s. And um, I had a lot of trouble getting the um, bad bus service. And I got in after Groucho's song. I was really annoyed. <laughs> but um, one of the great things about that, though, we're talking about, 19, about 1976, I think. And um, this was the classic cinema Tooting Beck and they were showing a few of them, and they, they showed Duck Soup as well, and I went to both screenings. And this was early evening, and there were packed houses, but mostly with teenagers, teens, 20s. Mm-hmm. It was a very young audience in the mid-70s for the Marx Brothers movies, and I, I don't think we'd see that now. Oh, sure you would, but those people would be like in their 60s by now. 
Yes, <laughs> unfortunately, yes. Yeah, yeah. Today's teens and twenties won't even know what these things are. But so it hasn't moved on. It's just us old guys now. But at the time, it was quite encouraging. It looked like you know the younger generation were going to be carrying this on. But uh, mm-hmm. where it would go past our generation, I have no idea. Um, terrible thought that there won't be an audience for it in the future. Um, I mean, oh. actually, tell me. Um, somebody said, well, said to me more than once in recent years that. America has almost forgotten the Mars Brothers. Do you, is that true? I don't think it is. I mean, and I tend to push back against the idea that um, kids aren't interested. I think, I mean, it's it's true that for a young person today, you know, there isn't much reason for them to be aware of um, film stars of the 1930s unless people make the effort to introduce them. Um but I've observed that when introduced to them, uh, kids love the Marx Brothers just as they always have. And if they don't know about them, it's our fault, you know, <laughs> for not passing it along to them uh, in a vigorous, insistent kind of way. I mean, I can't argue that the Marx Brothers are, are wildly popular among young people right now in the way that they were during the Vietnam era. But I think there's more hope in this department than um, some of my friends think there is. Well, let's well hope so. Mm. Let's hope that um, more of the of the current generation do say to the kids, "Please watch these; you will get something out of this." But um, I'm right, no, yeah, we've brought this up many well, times before. The the fact is that you know, back in the sixties and seventies, so many of us came across them be- on TV because there were so few choices that we just came across it by happenstance. Whereas these days, kids could watch whatever they want whenever they want to. They're never mm. they're never searching for something to look at. So they're they're less likely to come across it the way mm. we did. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And the yeah. sort of media fragmentation yeah. is a big part of this challenge. But on mm. the other hand, kids, if they are you know nudged in the right direction, they can now find the Marx Brothers in all the same places where they're getting all their entertainment. You know, yeah. um, I mean, you can sit down with YouTube and um, really see a good deal of um, of their work there. Um, so the fact that it's not quite such a challenge as it was for us to dig up the films, um, in a way, the ease of that provides some counterweight to uh, the unlikelihood of a young person uh, just taking it upon themselves to discover it. Although I do, I do think they they miss a lot with the delayed gratification when you when your only chance to to see the big store is waiting for ITV to show it <laughs> at ten o'clock in the morning and it and it takes about five years and then you get the TV times and oh god it's actually on this week and then it's on tomorrow and then it's on in an hour you know uh, that was that was quite something if only if only the big store lived up to all that but, uh, <laughs> sadly sadly it didn't no um, okay let's get on to the encyclopedia it's uh, it's well past time. Can you remember when and, and how you, you got the idea to uh, to put it together? It was really a sequel um, because the I, I first got into that format with the Laurel and Hardy Encyclopedia. That was the, um, the trigger for the rest of them. And the reason that happened was that I'd been writing about them for a long time in fanzine form and uh, they're much involved with the Sons of the Desert and screening stuff and so on. And uh, I I got a I gained a reputation for having a head full of facts and figures, information. Uh, not least because I tended to be dragooned into the trivia quizzes, and re- came up with all sorts of stuff that people didn't know about. And it was like, well, you know, um, for a while um, I was writing a column 
that was named after Sam Lufkin because of one of those trivia quizzes, I'd, give, I'd, I'd be given his name as an answer. And it turns out not to be the right answer. It doesn't matter. Um, the assembled company was saying, who? They'd never heard of the guy, even though he looms large in Hal Roach comedies and particularly the Lauren and Hardys. But, but Sam Lufkin didn't mean anything. So I was saying, I got a bit of a reputation for, for just knowing facts. And um, people were saying to me, uh, why don't you do something with this? Why don't you do a book? You know, you know, you know all these interesting facts about them. Do so, mm-hmm. You know, there's a book. And I said, well, fine, I, I'd love to, but that's all there is. I don't actually have a point of view, a narrative point of view to present. Um, all I have is information. And it was dis- it was suggested to me that I could do exactly that. And I know one of the people who encouraged me was, was Jack McCabe, the, the team's biographer, that there would be a, a, a viable book in precisely that, a reference book arranged alphabetically. And, you know, and, I'd, and I'd thought about that. And I think I said, well, that's about the only thing I could do, uh, an alphabetical thing, pattern after maybe, you know, the film goes companion and that sort of thing. Um, what was different about this was that nobody, to my knowledge, had presented an alphabetical reference book on one star or team. They'd been general things like, mm-hmm. as I said, the film goes companion about the movies in general. Nobody had really done a specific encyclopedia on any single com- comedian. And with the encouragement of a few people, including Jack McCabe, I thought, yeah, I, I could do this. And uh, I'd been introduced to a literary agent when I was asked to help somebody else who was doing a book on the subject. And uh, he kindly introduced me to his agent. So... I went back to said agent and say, hi, do you remember me? We were introduced by Blanche. She didn't remember, I didn't blame her. <laughs> no reason to remember me at all. But she was prepared to listen and explain what this book was about. And she was willing to hawk it around different publishers. And uh, it was turned down by just about every publisher in the United Kingdom. Eventually, uh, Batsford showed interest. And we thought, ah, great. Uh, somebody's interested and Batsford did indeed publish it. And it, it did quite well. And... Because of that, they suggested I might care to do a follow-up. And who do, you, who do you think is suitable for a follow-up book? And the logical follow-up for me was the Marx Brothers. Because after Laurel and Hardy, they were the people that I had the most to say about in terms of just pure information. So that's it. That's, that's, that's why the Marx Brothers Encyclopedia. Okay. Now, could you explain how you were able to do these so fast? I mean, the first one, the Warren Hardy came out in 95, but then it was only a year until the Marx Brothers in 96, and then another year for the Chaplin one in 97. How did you manage that? Yeah, um, it's a little bit deceptive because it, it reflects more their, their publishing schedule than my writing schedule. Yeah. Just, oh, just, just to, to backtrack, incidentally, uh, as regards why the A to Z format, uh, why adopt that? Mm. I became conscious of people asking me, What's the fi- what was the film where they do such and such? What's the film with the sawmill? That was the most common one and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I realised then that there was some sort of need, pre- this is pre-internet, that there was some sort of need for people to be able to look that up. <laughs> you, know, you want the movie with the sawmill? Look up sawmills. <laughs> and it will take you to that movie mm-hmm. and so on. So mm-hmm. that was kind of what prompted that. And I figured that this would work with other comedians. Um, but getting back to this point, the Laurel and Hardy encyclopedia was delivered, possibly getting on for a couple of years before they actually 
published and in the interim I was able to make some tweaks and changes but there was a, there was a bit of a holdback between delivery and publication but mm -hmm. there wasn't when it came to the Marx Brothers perhaps they were more keen to get it into print because the previous one had actually done quite well <laughs> yeah they had a bit more incentive to to, to speed it along a bit mm -hmm. but the actual mm -hmm. writing process of each of those was probably an average of 18 months with a little bit mm. either side, because um, I tended to break the rules and add and rewrite when we got to proof stage. Uh, figured that you know something could be better. And the publishers obviously don't really like that. They don't really blame them, but I was getting away with it. And mm -hmm. I'd done some preparatory work on each before I really started the writing proper, but not that much. So, um, but yeah, it was about about a year and a half. I must say that sounds amazing to me. I mean, that sounds to me like pretty pretty speedy work with the internet and a and a computer i mean as you say this is pre-internet um yeah. that i mean you must have just sat there all day <laughs> just writing 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 in retrospect, <laughs> in retrospect it feels like i was but actually i wasn't because at the same time at the um i was i was getting an advance that was useful for each but it wasn't really enough to live on and i was working on other stuff because i had gone freelance by then um i had been an archival film technician but i got the heave ho from the laboratory around the time that the laurel and hardy book was contracted <laughs> actually and when they got rid of me they rather helpfully said oh now i had more time to write your book oh thanks guys you know <laughs> but um but no i was writing um for radio comedy for radio at the time, um, a satirical... You'll, you'll know this, Matthew. This, not, this won't be known any, anywhere else, but uh, the news headlines mm, on Radio 2 indeed. Uh, starred comedian Roy Hudd, and um, he became a friend. And it was a, a weekly topical satire show, sketches and lines and songs and things. And we used to do two series per year plus a Christmas special, and each series would be about 13 weeks. So... Um, and my writing on that would occupy about half of my working week. So for about half the year, for half the week, I'd be writing for the news headlines, and the other half of the week, I'd be writing the books. And a lot of midnight on involved in both both of those, actually. So you can't really measure it in terms of normal working days, working hours. But it was 18 months of half years and half weeks writing the book so but it's it's impossible to gauge how long it actually worked out as being but the but the thing about this is that um people have said in the past is that all it took uh, to write well yes and no because each was also the culmination of a lifetime study really mm. i already had it a lot of it in my head it was a matter of transcribing it so it was yeah, it was writing time plus back experience combined, which again makes it even more difficult to quantify. But can you remember anything particularly interesting that that came up in the research process? Any any surprises or? Uh... Well, some incredible luck. I can tell you that. Um, mm -hmm. One of the most astonishing things. Um, very early on in, in in writing the Marx Brothers book, I was at a film collector's fair. And on a trestle table was this folder, and stuck on the front of it, what was actually a 
from a contemporary ad for the Animal Crackers movie. And I thought, what's this? And I opened it up. And it was a copy, obviously a stat, from somewhere. But it was a complete transcript, type transcript, of the opening night of Animal Crackers in 1928. Just wow. there for sale at a movie fair. I thought, my God, I, I where, where did this come from? <laughs> And I, well, I thought, well, so this is coming home with me. Uh, and, uh, you know, just stuff like that. Luck, you know, that's the, the sort of thing that tends to stay in my memory. I, I, I've never known the source for this, and I, I may never know, but um, it was like a, you know, a gift from above. <laughs> so suddenly I had the, the opening night transcript because at that time, you know, you, you were looking maybe at the few repro pages from the state scripts in the Marx Brothers scrapbook or something. You know, that's what you had to go on. And mm. this was something rather better. And incidentally, the pages don't match. Um, you've, you've got alternate Groucho lines in response to, you know, uh, take the professor's hat and coat. And then I think in the scrapbook, it's and ring for the wagon. In the movie, it's and send for the fumigators. And in the transcript I've found, I, it's another line again, which I can't remember right now. But stuff like that was different. But that that was a real find, and um, actually in parallel to that, um, it, at that time you could get a, it's still a relatively recent book, a George S. Kaufman anthology called By George, which had the complete original coconut script. So it was very fortunate that that was available at, at that time, and had not long become available. So so that you know that was handy and. Uh, and discovering unlikely sources for other people's biographical details, because, of course, there are entries for other actors, people who worked with them and writers and so on. And as you said, pre this is pre-internet. You couldn't just Google whoever it was and get complete filmography or anything. And and this was actually this was an issue much much more with the silent comedy book than some of the some of the other books. But an awful lot of people who were in screen comedy. If you go to something like, let's say, at that time, the BFI's database, and, it, and this was when it was a card system, you know, hadn't even got on onto computer at that point, <laughs> they'd have a card entry for such and such. And if you look, um, there'd be a scant few credits because when these were compiled, they were only looking at features. And an awful lot of people working screen comedy worked primarily in shorts. So most of their work wasn't there. So you had to look further afield to find out what they might have done. And one of the things I know I was doing was going through everything I had or could get access to in magazines like, say, Classic Images, Classic Film Collector as it had been earlier. And if they had an article about somebody, nab the article. Um, it could have been, you know, a person who'd worked, let's say the Marx Brothers, on one occasion that might have been better known for everything else. But there you've got an idea of where they were from, what they did, what their filmography was. So you collect articles like that. Uh, there'd be other magazines we get the same. There were there were trade directories. A wonderful one that I've given the loan of by a great friend of mine, now sadly gone, 1930 Blue Book. And it was a, a, a listing of artists, um, both sides of the camera, and potted biographies, things that were published at the time but had not been reprinted later on. But if you had access to journals like that, you could get an awful lot more of who the people were and what they would what they've been doing and where, and say where they came from and not all of them were in English one of the most obscure things I found was an Italian 
set of volumes, I think it was multi-volume, but it was a reference to loads of early film people in Italian that somebody compiled way, way back, 30s maybe. And I found this in the study room of the, the Theatre Museum in London, which is now defunct. It's actually the old Victoria and Albert Theatre Collection, which for a while separated and became a theatre museum, which they sadly eventually closed. But they had a study room there, which was enormously useful. And say there was this multi-volume Italian trade directory, I guess, for, for, the, for, for, for movie actors. And I found a lot of detail on little-known people in that that were not in the regular journals, the regular research uh, materials. So, um, so it, it required that sort of that sort of digging, just to piece it all together, piece the people's stories together, and so on. And then that, apart from going through trade journals um, to get contemporary reports, reviews, technical details, even um, an awful lot of that. So, um, but yeah, that's what you had to do before you could press and hit Google. <laughs> You had yes. to do all that, and a lot more. Uh, Paul Weslowski filled a hell of a lot of gaps, actually. He was great. Yeah. Um, and I corresponded a great deal. I mean, without Paul, that, that book would would never have got finished. I, I have to say that. He did furnish an off, a huge amount of material, an awful lot of material, with a lot of advice and info. Uh, he was terrific. What sort of feedback did you get on, on those books? Because I was, uh, I was just a, a kid in Plymouth with no connection to anyone when when they came out and and it was kind of like you know christmas and my birthday all coming at once i, I couldn't believe that these things were on the shelf i couldn't believe it either when they finally got published I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but no that's no it's really great to hear and um i feedback yeah um mostly good yeah um you always get the odd exception but by and large yes the the um the feedback i've had has been positive it's been sometimes occasional because one of the things about being an author is that very often because there's this separation between author and reader you don't know who's buying it who's seeing it who's reading it um it's only if, if you happen to be in touch with somebody or you meet somebody or there's, a, there's a, or there's some sort of event and 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 you get to meet them you, you don't necessarily get that so it's always wonderful to hear something back at least if it's positive. If it's not so positive, it's not so great. But uh, but it, but it but what I mean is, is that it's not a consistent thing, and you you spend an awful lot of time wondering what people make of these things because of that distance. Um, it's it's not the same as being on a, on a social media now, where everything bounces back at you. You know, everybody replies to you instantly. If you say any any public utterance on social media, there's an an instant, almost Isaac Newton like reaction. But if it's going into into print. And you're not there. You don't know. So, but no, a, a lot of, lot of, lot of kind comments over the years from different people, and it's very gratifying. It makes it feel, makes me feel like I've done something that's worth having. And the more so these days, because I can't sort of shake the idea that to some extent their raison d'être has been eroded by the internet, which provides that same sort of instant access format which I was attempting to provide in pre-internet days. I was thinking about that. You know, back when the book first came out, there would, might be two reasons you would pick it up. One would be to look up a fact, and the other would just be for random flipping around, or as we call it in the States, a bathroom book or whatever. You know, <laughs> you, you, you know. Um, so perhaps to look up a fact, somebody might go to the internet, 
But still, you you could pick it up and just thumb through it randomly and still be quite entertained. And I don't think that experience has diminished one bit. So that's why all these books are still so enjoyable because you come across things you would never think of looking up on your own. <laughs> it's true, actually. Yes. Yeah. Uh, th- thank yeah. you for that. I mean, yeah, um, I did try to keep it entertaining. One of the things that my favorite movie books when I was reading it and learning rather than doing it were the ones that had a kind of author's voice that came across like a friend, actually, mm-hmm. a companion. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, they used the word companion of, of books and so on. Um, in this case, it became rather more literal. It was like being guided, guided through it by a friend. And funny, funny thing, actually, is that um, that was kind of how I saw Groucho's original memoir, Groucho and Me. It was... It had that sort of way with it. It was it was like Groucho guiding you through his story as a friend. That's how it felt to me as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And okay, that was a biography, but there were you know there were more general film books where I, I felt the same sort of voice was coming through. Leonard Maltin's books, for example, I felt that mm-hmm. I was reading I was reading a friend's account. That's how it felt. Right. And mm-hmm. um, and I, I still feel that way about his books. And I suppose I was kind of aiming to, to be that same sort of friendly guide that a guy you might enjoy listening to and who could be light and, and I was always geared to jokes anyway um, to say I was writing these books while at the same time being a radio gag man so that tells you rather a lot and um, one of the things I aimed to be was light if nothing else if only to ensure accessibility didn't like the kind of film reference books where there were really being very academic and highfalutin and they're kind of pushing you away. I'm not an academic and I have no pretensions of being so and um, I wouldn't have wanted to feel that I was, you know, on a pedestal pushing a reader away. I wanted to invite the reader in accessibility and just, you know, come across like a human being on the pages. Mm. Uh, I, I guess that's why I was a little disappointed when some of the, say, middle editions... Uh, didn't have everything I had in the original. There was, um, you know, some some jokey things or some light asides, which were obviously considered dispensable. These are the sort of decisions that publishers, editors make. That's it's part of the game. It, it mm-hmm. happens. But an author sometimes is disappointed when they do happen. Can you so, remember any of the bits that w- that w- went missing? Uh, the one that comes to mind actually is about um, the entry for gambling. And there was a nice story. I think Paul Weslowski gave me this story. And it's about a guy in Vegas who won a huge amount of money on a fruit machine. And this was um, these were fruit machines that were named after MGM stars. And the money, uh, the, the machine he'd won the huge sum on was on a, on a machine named after Judy Garland. Mm-hmm. And um, it was some say ridiculous amount, but apparently before he tried the Judy Garland machine, he tried one named after Groucho, and he he lost <laughs> lost lost money on it. And I suggested jokingly that maybe maybe the Groucho machine thought it was Chico playing, which <laughs> 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 you know it's it's not much of a joke, but it's just a light aside. And that was not included in uh, an edition or two of the book, and when. I prepared the most recent one for Titan Books. It was one of a number of things I asked them to reinstate, <laughs> and they did. <laughs> so thank you, Titan Books. 
But I seem to remember last time I was talking to you about that, you said that they, they didn't even t- tell you, and it was sometime before you even noticed oh, yeah. that, yeah. that it, things had gone missing. Is that, is that right? Yeah, but it, yeah it, it, but it happens. It's not unique to them. Um, a few years ago, somebody mentioned to me uh, an actress, a silent comedy actress called Dorothy DeVore, and had, had said to me, um, how many films was she in with Stan Laurel? I said, none. I said, oh, oh, what? And he got some old um, info. Oh, I won't say which, which organisation it was, but it credited her as having been in a number of the Stan Laurel solo films, and that this was nonsense. Mm. And I knew about this, and I'd seen this elsewhere, and I remembered in the silent comedy book, I, I'd written something for her entry saying, there seems to have been a tendency among historians at one point uh, to ascribe films to Dorothy DeVore that she's not in possibly based on the fact they didn't recognise who the leading lady was and assumed it was her. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. so oh, it must be Dorothy DeVore. And it wasn't. It would be something like <laughs> Edith Gregory or whoever. You know. And so after I'd had this conversation with the guy, I went back to the silent comedy book to see this thing I'd written about her, and it wasn't in there. I hadn't realised that the editor had chopped that during the production stage of the book. I'd never realised that it had not been included. And I was actually quite annoyed because it, it, it made, I thought, a legitimate point. And also, a, I hope, a helpful guide to people who were going to look up Dorothy Dillon um, so that they wouldn't believe what they saw in certain references about films she was supposed to have been in. Um, mm-hmm. but, but that's what they but publishers, editors have their own brief and they don't necessarily have to alert an author. That's the nature of the game. So, um, you know, it's one of the pitfalls of being an author. So, uh, so I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make a big thing about it because it's, you know, it's industry practice, but I would have, in, in some instances, I would have preferred to have been asked. That's just stepping to one side briefly, you mentioned there um, working in radio. You work also connected with the, the BBC Flywheel shows, oh, were you not? not only very peripherally. Um, they, were, they were being adapted for BBC Radio by a friend of mine, Mark Brissenden. And um, we'd often meet for a drink and talk about the show. And um, they were coming up with either Marx songs or songs that would suit the Marxes because they always had a musical break halfway through the mm. show. And about the most I can obviously say is that I'd, in conversation, I may have suggested one or two of the songs that they finished up using. That's that's about it. Most mm. of the songs, if I remember correctly, were suggested by Dick Vosborough. Um, mm. I wasn't too strongly involved, so I can't be 100% sure about that. But I think I think one or two of them, yeah, I think may have been my suggestion, I um, I do. I do remember suggesting they use "Life Is So Peculiar." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that may be my suggestion. That's the one I'm pretty sure about. But that was about it. And I think I, uh, what was it? Sitting in sitting in the National Film Theatre bar with Mark again talking about the show. I think I, I think I gave him one line, <laughs> as a, just in conversation. <laughs> Say, oh, how about saying blah blah, and it went in. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if and I'm still waiting for the check. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, something that I would like to uh, thank you for, Glenn, is the really generous uh, number of paragraphs and pages that you devote to I'll say she is, which I spent some years uh, researching and reconstructing. And at the time, 
the Marx Brothers Encyclopedia, um, until my book came out, which is, you know, a whole book just about Asse she is, uh, the encyclopedia had by far the most available information about the actual content of that show, not just the behind the scenes saga that, of how it came to be, um, but the actual um, what happened on stage. And it was a tremendously important early source. And then during the experience of recruiting a lot of talented people who didn't really know much about the Marx Brothers. Um, it was always a perfect book to hand someone for the very reason Bob was talking about before. Like, you know, it was maybe too heavy a lift to ask someone to start on page one of Adamson or Luvish, but flip through the encyclopedia a little bit and land where you're interested. And I, I think we, um, we got a lot of uh, new recruits feet wet that way. <laughs> Um, so you were very involved in the Asseshi's revival too. And I wonder if in that section and maybe in some other parts of the book too, did you, you must have had a conscious sense that you were revealing new things that weren't in any of the other available books. Um, how exciting was that? Were you rubbing your hands together thinking, oh, wait till they, <laughs> wait till they see this? <laughs> that is a wow thing for me. I had no idea that it was used like that or would be useful in that way. I'd always hoped it would be. And that, that was always the thing. I, hoping these books would be useful and finding out sometimes from different people that they were. Always a great thrill. It still is. Um, and I'm a little bit speechless now <laughs> hearing that. That's terrific. Um, but yeah, it was exciting. It was also terrifying because I, I knew that I had, for, for, for to be a genuine encyclopedia, to live up to its name, it had to have something of substance about these early and to us, in performance terms, lost shows, I had to give a reasonable mm -hmm. idea, um, rather than people thinking I was just bluffing and, you know, busking my way through it. And I, as, as I said earlier on, I got incredibly lucky when it came to animal crackers and coconuts, but I'll say she is, and anything pre that, um, on the mezzanine, home again, and that sort of thing, there were fragments, separate fragments around that you could work on, and but not that much in one place. And um, um, I think Kyle Crichton gave us some, some odd bits of Alsatias. Um, not much, but he had some. And I, I forget now where all the pieces came from. But but yeah, I, I tried to re just reconstruct as a sort of archaeologist for whatever I could get. And um, the recollections of people like Hattie Darning that were published elsewhere and so on. And for Alsatias, I think what I did was to collate whatever I could find, the individual fragments that were known about from the show, and go by the, the reprinted program in the Marx Brothers scrapbook, mm -hmm. taking that as a breakdown and thinking, okay, what goes where? What was likely to follow that? What, how does that slot into that? Um, what logically progresses from there? And at this distance, because it was a long time ago now, that's the, the best I can recall as to how I had to go about it. Um, piecing together from fragments, using that as a framework, the programme. That's, that's what I like. What I can remember. And of course, having uh, the Groucho file rep reprinting the Napoleon sketch was pretty helpful. <laughs> Saved an awful lot Yes, of it, it does seem like you did have access to um, the typescript that Miles Kruger has in his collection, which I, I, I eventually caught up with myself. But long before I even contemplated that these things could be 
you know, attained in any way. Uh, so much of that was in the encyclopedia. It was detective work. And uh, when I wrote the, the original edition of that, I had no access to that. I knew that there was a copy of the script, complete script in existence, but there was no way you could get to it at the time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't available. Um, so it's, it's, again, the difference between the account of the cuts to Night of the Opera in the, in the original edition and what I was able to say later on once I'd been furnished with the mark cutting continuity. The original was mm-hmm. all piecing together from, from fragments. Then I, I, later on in the subsequent editions, I could be more specific because I had the solid you know, basis from the continuity to work from. So that's, that, again, is the difference between the original edition and subsequent ones. Well, I have a few quickfire questions uh, submitted by members of our Facebook groups. Uh, Scott Satanai says, uh, with, the, with, the, with the curse of hindsight, is there anything now that you wish you'd done differently in those books? Um, do I do more money? <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not, because um, for one thing, you, well, you can't replicate the circumstances of their creation now because it's all different. The internet has changed things totally. So it, it's mm-hmm. difficult to, to, to go back to it and think, how would I have done it differently with this in mind? I mean, it's, and, and I think if, if I were to embark on an equivalent project now without the existence of the internet, I can't see how I would have done it any differently. I, I, I can't think of a different approach. So, mm-hmm. so no, not really, not really. Aaron Nugent wants to know if there are any plans to, uh, to update it for a, another edition. Probably not. Probably not. From what I gather, the, the sales of the most recent edition haven't been that great. So I, I can't imagine another publisher wanting to take it up in the future. I, I don't think there'd be anybody who'd see it as, as a viable project now. Um, after you finished the Chaplin Encyclopedia, you, you stopped. Did you consider doing any more? Was there a reason you stopped producing these books? Yeah, there was, really. Um, and it's back to the economics of it, in as much as I needed to live. <laughs> and the, there weren't the advances anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Batsford, the original publisher, gone out of business. They would, well, I said, I say gone out of business, that they survived as an imprint, but the organization went into liquidation or something like that and was, mm-hmm. was, was acquired by another company. And the, the, um, the books went out of print. And I, was able to take them elsewhere in a couple of instances. But there just wasn't the interest anymore from the publishing world. And uh, nobody who, you know, with the exception of Titan, who wants to do a new edition of Marx Brothers, nobody was biting. Who would you like to have done an encyclopedia of that you didn't get around to? Who would have been next? The next was going to be Keaton. And I held off because a friend of mine had written a very good book about Keaton's talkie work. And I wanted to give that enough time to have, you know, a good run before anything resembling mm-hmm. a competing work might appear. So I thought, you know, mm-hmm. I don't endanger that. And by the time I felt enough time had passed, um, the, the, the deals weren't there anymore. Nobody was interested in offering a proper advance for one of these. And I remember were, Simon Louvish saying the same thing to me, that, that he hadn't stopped, but just that the, 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 the market had stopped. You know, Faber had... Uh, dropped their film list and um it it had just all fizzled away yeah it, it mm-hmm. wasn't just wasn't just um the Simon or me either I'm, without going into into names um i'm aware of um other you know 
very, very well-respected film historians who weren't getting the book deals anymore. Some of them have gone down the private mm. publishing avenue. Some have just stopped. But I, I don't think there's a lack of interest. I do think as a subject there is a readership still. And mm. I wish more publishers um, would would take notice and, and yeah, make the investment. Mm encourage a few of us to go back into print and chronicle the rest of all this wonderful material because, you know, if nobody does it, it's going to die out. It's going to die. Mm -hmm. The internet is one thing, but it's not going to divert, divert people's interest to a certain topic. Mm. Um, you know, general surfing will not necessarily direct you to something good like, say, the Marx Brothers or, you know, let's say a great silent comedian. Um, if, you know, if you're 20 years old, and you've never heard of, say, Max Linder or whatever, you're not going to be directed to that. But if you see a book about this guy on the shelf, and fortunately some friend of mine has recently done a book on him, um, if you see that on the shelf, you might look at it and say, oh, hang on, who's this guy? He looks interesting. And that's mm -hmm. something that books will do that the internet won't, mm. I think. And please, publishing world, take this on board. Yeah, give a few of us a chance to chronicle these things again. And um, apropos of which... Um not a question, but uh, Fred Sullivan, uh, one of our Facebook members, um, said, tell him I love him, and if I was sent to a desert island, I'd take the Laurel and Hardy Encyclopedia with me. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Thank, thank you very much. <laughs> so there we are. That's, that's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Now, it's so good. Um, like I said earlier on, yeah, you're sitting in, in front, of the, front of the keyboard at a remove, and you don't hear this snuff. You just wonder. Yeah. And, and when you do get feedback like that, as fortunately does happen fairly often, it's wonderful. It's really great. I just feel it, it's, mm. it's, you know, there's been some point to it all. And uh, mm. frankly, the more the years pass since they first appeared, the more valuable this is to me. Seems less of a wasted youth. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what we tell ourselves every day. <laughs> uh, once again, so pleased to know it's not just me. <laughs> There are dozens of us. Dozens. <laughs> Earlier today, and this is the reason why we finished up doing this maybe 30 minutes later than intended, um, I went to a, a, a what had been a postponed book launch. Um, it was supposed to have happened last year, but COVID intervened. And it's mm -hmm. a new biography of Fred Carno, comedy impresario. Oh. And there were a lot of you know like-minded people there, and... Um, this includes um, people who are enthusiasts for screen comedy because, of course, Carla's influence on screen comedy is enormous by Chaplin, his brother Sid, and Stan Laurel, and, and a lot else, by the way, which I shan't go into now, and also people who are interested in the English Music Hall. And there were people into both there. And I remember uh, when I was in conversation with a, a lovely woman um, who was in the theatre herself and was just in recent days doing a, a, a presentation to do with the uh, British Music Hall. And she was approached by a young guy aged 26 who was saying how interested he was in music hall. He wants to see more music hall things. He's really into it. And I said to him, well, this is, this is wonderful because um, at gatherings like this, you get people who have been into it all this time. And you, but we think, we often talk amongst, talk amongst ourselves and think, Nobody really is picking up on this now. The next generation isn't. We, it's going to end with us. We're, we're, we're not young. And when we're gone, mm -hmm. that'll be it. Uh, nobody will be interested anymore. And then sometimes you hear a thing like that and you think, yes, there is hope. Um, 
but also, of course, in these gatherings, and I think this is the point that really got me here, was that uh, you do meet more people who are interest, interested in this sort of thing than you think are really out there. If you go to these gatherings, you discover there are far more than you think, which is valuable, and you hear stories about the possibility of another generation picking it up. So... Yeah, I mean, my my experience, obviously, of of um, starting a Facebook group has been has been very instructive. In that, I you know, I just did it for me and and a, and a few friends, and uh, you know, there's three or four thousand people now. Um, so it is, you know, they are out there, and the internet does does bring them together. Um, that's the that's the good side of the internet is that yeah. it makes it makes little villages out of vast wildernesses. Yes, when when I was uh, nine years old, I had one friend who liked the Marx Brothers, one one friend who knew about them. Uh, and today, thanks largely to Matthew, I have 5,000 such friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it really great. Um, doing this over the years has, has brought me into contact with, I have no idea how many people, um, even pre-internet, I mean, through correspondence, through conventions and that sort of thing. He found himself meeting a lot of people, and now even more so, like this, you know, at a great distance, you're still in con- you're in contact with people. And uh, um, I'm just thinking, when I was a teenager, really, I felt pretty isolated. Um, I think I said mm-hmm. I was the last man standing as regards the old Marx Brothers coterie at Battersea Grammar School. <laughs> and uh, I was the one who was doing large colour drawings of the Marx Brothers and put him up on the wall in the art room. <laughs> <laughs> and um, funny enough, one of the art masters sold one of them during the school break. <laughs> it's amazing. And, uh, it must have had the soul of the Bogart. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. He, yes, that art teacher was my own Roscoe W. Chandler, I can tell you that. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and... But, but quite often, my interest in all this stuff was considered eccentric. I felt like I was pretty much the only one there. And um, I often got strange reactions from my contemporaries. They just thought it was rubbish and, and thought I was peculiar. Well, it probably was, but you know, but not for that reason necessarily. But they, they saw it as an eccentric interest. And I suppose maybe it was. But, um, but there were some interested people who genuinely wanted to know more. And I, I mentioned this only because there was one school friend who really couldn't quite grasp it. And I, I think it didn't help that he was from a very conservative background and indeed may have had familial connections with conservative politics in this country, actually, because it was that kind of school where the sons of, you know, the influential would often go. And um, he said to me, why, why, would, why did they call themselves the Marx Brothers? And I said, mm-hmm. well... But that's who they were and he couldn't he had problems with this and I think that he thought that it was a political statement that they were somehow <laughs> you know communist inspired mm. and they called, them, they called themselves the Marx Brothers as a, as a badge among the socialist revolution or something like that <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, 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 and I was trying to explain to him I said well and he didn't get didn't get that when I said well, that's who they were I said well they were brothers whose name was Marx. He didn't get that either. <laughs> and, 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 and I had to break it down even further. So, well, they were each the sons of Sam and Minnie Marx of East 93rd Street, New York. Now do you get it? <laughs> I forget how that conversation ended, but I fear it wasn't well. Sounds like a lost Abbott and Costello routine. <laughs> 
It's, it's like, why did they call themselves the Marx Brothers? For the exact same reason that Karl Marx called himself <laughs> Karl Marx. Yeah. <laughs> I remember doing a cartoon for his amusement. I, I sketched the Marxes, and um, I'd only got as far as three of them. And I continued with the fourth, and he said to me, there's more? <laughs> so <laughs> I had to explain Seppo. Good luck with that. <laughs> and I could also draw in a sort of loose cartoon form. Could you explain them to me someday? <laughs> <laughs> Bob and Noah, do you have anything else before we move on to the song? Well, you know where I'm going, guys. Um, Glenn, <laughs> with your encyclopedia of knowledge, can you help us identify the manicurist in A Night at the Opera? Please, 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 please. <laughs> Arg! <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought somebody had identified her, actually, not too long ago. Um, I, this this rings a vague bell. Um, somebody I think who, who died not long ago and it was in the obit. You know, she had lots of small parts and was the manicurist in the night of the opera. The, but I thought I may have seen this somewhere. Um, mm. But no, this is just based on you know possibly a false memory. Okay. I don't know. see Bob's eyes lighting up there. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> wasn't it uh, Dorothy Dwyer? <laughs> <laughs> it might as well be. If, it, if you don't know who it is, yeah, say, say Dorothy Dizon. Uh, actually, as a serious answer to that, um, I would say if you can get access to the Margaret Herrick collection, isn't that the, the UCLA, something like that? It's MGM paperwork. And there will right. presumably be call sheets for each day's shooting as to who was required on the set, list of players. I did speak with someone at the Academy Library, and he directed me towards Turner Entertainment, who I guess holds all the uh, physical assets to those MGM films. Yeah, right. so, well, t- possibly Turner, possibly UCLA. Uh, if they've mm-hmm. got the call sheets for the day, each day's shooting, then might will be a clue in the list of, list of players there, and she may well be mm-hmm. named. And if they've got a few names who are possibles, you could match the names to photos go online back to that again bring up a photo and you say mm-hmm. oh that's name no that's not her name that's not her you know so if you really wanted to identify a small supporting player in that way which i confess i never thought to try and do um mm-hmm. that's what i do now i think mm-hmm. okay well you're on it then so get back to it <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it has to take its place in the queue after the 14,082 other things I feel I need to be getting on with. <laughs> Glenn, we always uh, end the show by asking uh, our guests to, to uh, pick, a, pick a song to end on, and I believe you've not only got a song, you've got a story to go with it. Yes, it's not much of a story, but it is, it is a story. Um, it's back to that, uh, what I might call the malformative years. The <laughs> How I was beaten and bludgeoned and turned into a wreck by my school days and immediately afterwards. But no, not really. Um, but no, teen years. And um, it's just a, it does encourage a small digression in, about the difficulty in, in, in getting to see things or obtain things and so on. One of the things you could not get over here for love nor money in the 1970s, the Groucho Decker recordings. You could not do it. I remember going to an oldies record shop that had pretty much everything you would think. And I wanted the Deco Groucho recordings. No, not a chance, not a chance. Um, but they, they had been available. I mean, the, the, the 10-inch 78s 
were around, at least on both sides of the Atlantic, but you tend not to see those. Um, but they were collected on a 10-inch LP in America on the Decca label. And over here, they were on a 12-inch LP from one of the Decca subsidiary labels. But they arranged it so that they're all on one side of the UK 12-inch album. And the other side was Jerry Colonna, which somebody at Decca thought was somehow, you know, <laughs> an appropriate coupling with Groucho. I didn't, I, I, Groucho <laughs> and Jerry Colonna can complement only in the sense of people who think that, um, okay, this, this guy has a peculiar singing voice. That's the, roughly the same thing they'll do. <laughs> but, um, mm -hmm. but either way, you couldn't even get that. And um, subsequently, I managed to, I think I've had about three copies pass through my hands <laughs> in more recent mm. years, and the, uh, say the last 30 plus years, but I couldn't get it. And I, I, they, they used to, used to play, the, play them on the radio and I, I, I managed to tape them off radio. So I had tapes of the Groucho Deckers at the time, years before I managed to get the vinyl album. And then um, at the time it had to suffice. And of all these peculiar ditties, the one that stood head and shoulders above the others was Show Me a Rose. This wonderful thing that goes in its in its own sweet way, um, a masterpiece of non sequitur and uh, convince, convincing in, in, its, in its atmosphere of having a profundity. It really <laughs> sounds profound whilst being totally unprofound. <laughs> and, and I always loved it for this reason. And, um, and I would sing it. Um, I have the singing voice of a, you know, of a corn crate. But um, but I could do Groucho probably because oh, because skip the record. Why don't you sing? Well, just go sing it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't the nerve today. <laughs> you, you, you don't want to hear that. But um, I could I can I, I can't sing, but I can imitate comedian singing. Oddly, <laughs> I have a small gift for mimicry, and one of the things I can do is imitate how comedians sing. But often it's mistaken for bad singing because I'm doing it. I'm replicating them and people just think I'm a crap singer. <laughs> but no, it's just what I am, but not for that reason. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, at a, one of the sort of parties one finished up at in one's teens at that time. Late at night in a stranger's house. And it was a very large house, quite a few rooms. And I'd been, become separated from the people I'd arrived with. I don't know what they were doing. I've got a pretty good idea, actually. But um, <clears throat> not, for, not to be repeated in a respectable podcast. And I was sitting <laughs> on my own with an unwanted drink in my hand. Small hours in the morning, bored, stupid. I mean, strangers, people I didn't even like. And thinking, what the hell am I doing here? And getting pretty depressed, and I just sat there, and I started to sing just myself, for my own amusement, Show Me a Rose. Unfortunately, some of the people around me picked it up, and they started listening. And as it progressed, I was aware of people looking more and more puzzled by this and baffled. <laughs> and what the hell is this? And I was looking around, and I thought, stay with it. And I finished it, and I got I was just surrounded by this... this silent room of baffled looking people so i just took a bow and said thank you good night left the room <laughs> left the ponder show me a rose well in honor of your younger self then we shall uh, we shall queue up show me a rose um and glenn mitchell thank you very very much indeed for joining us mm -hmm. 
Ever since songwriters started writing songs, they have written songs about a rose. About a rose. Red roses, blue roses, old roses, new roses, roses from the south and east and west. But here's the rose song that I love the best. The best. Show me a rose, I'll show you a girl who cares. Show me a rose, or leave me alone. Show me a rose, I'll show you a stag at bay. Show me a rose, or leave me alone. She taught me how to do the tango, down where the palm trees sway. I called her Rosa Mia, and she called a spade a spade. Show me a rose. I'll show you a storm at sea. Show me a rose, or leave me alone. One night in Bixby, Mississippi, we watched the clouds roll by. I said, "My dear, how are you?" And she whispered. So am I. Show me a rose, I'll show you a girl named Sam. Show me a rose, or leave me alone. Show me a rose. Show me a rose. A fragrant rose. A fragrant rose. Make believe that you don't know me until you show me a rose, a fragrant rose. The Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham Spugs, the annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!